Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work podcast. I am Kim Scott, Wesley's co-host. And I'm Wesley Faulkner, very lonely uh, on this podcast. Um, And we have a guest today. We have a guest who's sitting right here in the room with me. I am thrilled to be with you, Wesley, and with Kim, and and to be here physically in your presence is awesome. My name is Matt Abrahams. I'm a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, and I look forward to our conversation. I'm the author of a great book. You got to start selling books. Uh, okay. Yeah. You got the book. Here it Think is. faster, talk smarter, uh, all about how to speak better in the moment when communicating. Even if you're an introvert. All right. So, Matt, what we're going to do is I'm going to read a, a couple of paragraphs from from Just Work. We also have we also have that book right here. Yes, a great book. And you and Wesley are going to give me some radically candid feedback. And then we're going to hear from you about your experience with bias. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right. Here we yeah, go. Let's do it. Disrupt bias. If you want to help your team change unproductive biased patterns of thought, one of the best things you can do is to sit down with them and explain why you think doing so is essential to a collaborative, respectful working environment. Mm. But for this to work, you have to have an open conversation. Be willing to listen to the reasons why your team may be reluctant. People have painful experiences that make them reluctant to do this work. Talk about them. This is going to be uncomfortable, and there's probably no way to make it feel comfortable. What you can do is to create an environment that reassures people that they won't be punished for making good faith mistakes or for correcting each other's mistakes. Entrepreneur and author Jason Maiden explains why it's important that teammates feel safe both to make mistakes and to point them out. He encourages people to get beyond the fear of saying the wrong thing because you can't get to the right thing without first making some mistakes in between. At the same time, Mason points out, sorry, Maiden points out, I should not hide my truth to make you feel comfortable in your bias. Disrupting bias is not going to feel comfortable. In fact, it's going to feel awkward at best and risky at worst. That's why starting with a conversation is important. Acknowledge the discomfort. Don't say it's no big deal. Doing this is a big deal and different people will be reluctant to do it for different reasons. It's also important not to confuse being uncomfortable with being unsafe. Don't minimize and don't exaggerate it. Get it out on the table. Once you've discussed the costs and benefits, odds are you all will decide that you don't want bias to skew your decision-making and your results. If you and your team reach that conclusion, there are three things you'll need to develop together in order to start disrupting bias, a shared vocabulary, a shared norm, and a shared commitment. All right, so lay it on me. What do you think? Matt, we'll we'll start with you, and then uh, Wesley will give me some radical candor. So this resonates a lot with me as as a teacher who teaches communication, encouraging my students to speak up and speak their truth. uh, You want to set up an environment where people feel comfortable, but at the same time, that implies that people are going to step on toes. And so Mm -hmm. the part that really resonated with me was this notion of setting up a safe environment where people can say something, reflect, and, and perhaps take back what they said or modify. 
and not have them feel like they're under threat for having said what they're initially mm-hmm. thinking. So, uh, and, and I agree with what's written. It's, it, it's very challenging to do this and you need everybody to come to the party ready to, to play. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. And ready to be uncomfortable. That's right. Yes. Being sa- it's like, it's like trapeze school, you know, <laughs> there's a big safety net under you, but you're going to fall off that trapeze some of the time. Right. I think having some underlying uh, goal that everybody's achieving and striving for. So in my classroom, everybody wants to learn. There's this underlying mm-hmm. thing that we all buy into and agree. And if we can then talk about how we can learn better, if everybody feels comfortable and shares their perspective, that helps. And I think in a corporate world, you need to spend a little bit more time talking about what's that underlying goal. Is it efficiency? Is it coordination, camaraderie, et cetera? Or if everybody feels is prepared to feel uncomfortable. That's right. Yes. Right? yes. Everybody feels safe and safe to be uncomfortable. That's correct. That's correct. I got to say that the that what you're talking about, what you said, uh, the preamble before the discussion is so important because I had a discussion just uh, last week of with someone who said something that was controversial. I'll just put it there. Um, and I had to start the conversation saying, we disagree fundamentally on some of the things that you said, but our relationship won't end at the conclusion of no matter where it goes at the end of this conversation, but we do need to talk about it. And so that, that let them like understand that they don't have to censor themselves or have to like filter what they're saying and making sure that there's space to go beyond the sentiment and talk about the reason for that sentiment. And I, I feel like a lot of people who say things that people generally disagree with, there's a whole history there that you yeah. have to say, okay, explain to me how you got to this conclusion and and really like lay it on me. And one of the things, like, especially when dealing with uh, like bias or, or is, is that sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes I'll have these conversations Well, people know what the truth is until it's tested until they can actually go deeper and it, and they kind of fall back into, well, it's just true, or that's just how it is. When, when you hit that point, then you realize that you've reached the limit of their understanding, but they've had this truth for such a long time that it's embedded and it's hard to question that. And so that's when like agreeable disagreement turns into where you're actually tearing down the walls of their understanding of what is reality, and then they could start to lose it a bit. So so can you share with us what it was that you disagreed about? It's the um, defining it, for between friends. <laughs> so, so this person that I knew um, was very anti-trans, mm-hmm. um, and specifically they're anti-trans women. Mm-hmm. Um, and the discussion was why was that and it was a lot of like when they grew up they're an older person mm-hmm. and it was more like well i understand trans men because it's an upgrade you're going from a marginal oh my god <laughs> and uh but for trans women i feel like you know i need to keep women's spaces safe yeah and that was their stance and it yeah. was kind of like do you feel unsafe did something happen like how yeah. How uh, how often does this happen? Have you been? Have you experienced some of this? And that's kind of where the discussion, kind of like, how much of this thing that you feel that you're standing on, are you accomplishing the thing that you think you're doing? And that's kind yeah. of the stance that I took. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, it wasn't it wasn't just bias. It was actually 
what, what I think what, what we would consider a prejudice, but what that person didn't think it was a prejudice. They just thought it was truth like that. And that's complicated. And so this was more of a stance using their platform rather than targeting specific individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but this person is somewhat prominent and that's why I won't say their name. And, um, and it left food for thought where they're like, okay, uh, I'll start. That's something to think about. And one of the things that they were saying is like, um, the stance was, well, these men want to be women. And so, and the want to was the part of it yeah. that like I keyed in on. It's like, yeah. do, you, do you think they, they want to, like I was saying this, the same arguments you're using were like the same arguments I heard around gay men and gay women. Yeah. About like, well, they just want to be. They're, they're, it's trendy, yeah. you know, that kind of yeah. thing where it wasn't necessarily kind of like who they were, and so that's also that that part really resonated with them, and they're like, okay, I really do need to rethink about how I feel about this. The part, Wesley, of what you said that really struck me is is that you felt comfortable enough saying, "Wait a minute, this is something that that I disagree with," and and the ability to say that and have that received. I think is really important. It gets to the point Kim talked about. You have to have um, some level of respect and camaraderie to be able to say yeah. that. And, and that's a very uncomfortable thing to say to somebody who you have a relationship with in some way, shape or form to say, hey, wait a minute, I don't I don't buy that. I don't I don't. And we need to explore that. In a, the other part of it is you said it in a rational way. It wasn't like getting upset. And, and, and I, so I, I appreciate the invitation that you allowed there. Uh, and and the the initiative that came with that invitation that that to me is very powerful. Uh, I'm not sure that everybody feels comfortable doing that. Yeah, I think part of it is that I'm writing a keynote speech for a conference. I'm gonna and it's about living within your integrity. And so I think yeah. it was like top of mind. So I felt especially pre- <laughs> pressured to make sure that I follow through. Yeah, <laughs> you got to walk the talk. I think the other thing that you did brilliantly in that conversation is you said. I disagree with you and we can still have a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's something about there's something even with issues where there's a great deal of, of emotion, it's possible to work with people with whom you totally disagree. And right. I think we we're losing sight of that a little bit. Uh I do want to say that I do have a point of privilege here because I am not part of the marginalized group that this person had an issue with. And so I was able to have that, like, I guess, healthy detachment in the conversation. Um, She was not like threatening my right to exist and that kind of thing, which allowed me to have that conversation. But it is something that I feel strongly about. And, uh, and I feel it's also, we, I think we talked about in this previous, previous episode, like we need to question these things instead of just being polite and letting it go. We can be polite and still address it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. The point you highlighted, Kim, I think is really important. The difference between understanding and agreeing. And I think we Mm -hmm. conflate those sometimes. I mean, I, I can understand your perspective. doesn't mean I agree with it. And I, you pulled out the words that were very uh, concerning to you, want to, is what you said. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of paraphrasing as a way to acknowledge I heard you. Doesn't mean I agree, but I heard you. This is what I heard. And then you can have a conversation about what you heard. And it sounds like you teed that up and in, in highlighting that language. So I appreciated that part as well. 
Wow, it's weird having both of you on one side and me on this other. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm being interviewed. You're the guest. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should say that there was a Zencaster technical fail. Yes, was. yes. And, and, and Kim and I are actually neighbors. Uh, we've yeah. gotten to know each other um, relatively recently. So I literally jumped in my car to solve the problem because yes. Wesley, as technically savvy as he is, could not solve the problem for me. So... So, yes, we don't mean to be inter- interviewing you. We're just in this weird configuration. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just I love this new dynamic. It's just like, let's change it up. Yeah, yeah. I'll be coming yeah. to your place next week. Yeah, yeah. We'll just okay, see right. we'll you here. We're flying to Virginia. Yeah, it might take longer than five minutes, but That's we can right. get there. Yeah. I'll be in London, so it'll be awkward. So. Oh, there okay. you go. There you go. Even further. All right. So, Matt, one of the things that Wesley and I like to do yeah. when, we're, when we have guests is to ask you to tell a story about an experience that you had. And in this case, with bias. But if you want to talk about prejudice or bullying or discrimination or harassment or physical violence, you can talk about <laughs> any of those things. But uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, I have some stories I can tell in many of those categories. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The story that that is most salient to me, because I was just reminded of it recently. So I I have a six and a half year old nephew and and I took my nephew out uh, to the park. I I happen to have a a schedule that allows me to be more available during the day, uh, uncertain days. And I remember when I was uh, raising my two kids, my wife and I um, would divide time with them and she would do work and other things. And I would take the kids out and around. And I was often the only dad male present uh, in these circumstances. And it was at times just very uncomfortable for me. And and I know this is a very different kind of bias than others that you talk about, but I certainly felt mm-hmm. like, like I was purposely being ostracized, looked at with curiosity, suspicion, and not invited in to some of the, not only conversations, but it also influenced and affected my kids, which is where I got concerned. Uh, so you know, very different type of bias, but it was a type of bias that was persistent. It happened a lot. It wasn't just once or twice. And, and I was just reminded of it when I took my, my young nephew out um, because I saw it still happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that I think that, that that certainly is bias. And it's a, it's a very it's it's a it's a good example of the way in which bias is destructive for everyone. It was bad for you. It was bad for your kids. It was also bad for the other parents mm-hmm. uh, and for the other kids like exclusion is bad for the excluded, but it's also bad for the people who are excluding people. They're missing out on, on something. I, and, and I found, I have twins and I found when they were first born and, you know, I had just had a C-section, so I wasn't, uh, you know, I was, I just had major surgery and my husband was changing all the diapers uh, for the first day. And, and when he got it wrong, like the nurses just mocked it. I mean, Marcel is like, you useless man. And mm-hmm. then when I finally was able to get up and about and change the diaper, I mangled it the same way he had. We, it was our, they were our first children for both of us. And, uh, and in fact, he's kind of neater and more organized than I am. So I mangled it even worse than, than he did, the diaper, not the child. And, uh, and the nurse was so kind to me. It was like patient. Oh, you're a new mom. It's okay. And I remember thinking that they were sort of, they were trying to chase Mm -hmm. him away from this domain, which they considered a woman's domain. And I was like, do not chase, I need him. (laughs) Do not chase him away, please. 
So I think it's like that's an yeah. example of another another kind of bias. And, and one last thing I'll say is it really forced me to re-envision who I was because I was being perceived by some, I think, as a threat. Like here's this male hanging out at the playground. Yeah. And, and I certainly do not see myself that way. And, yeah. and I was mm-hmm. purposely enacting behaviors to to not look threatening. But yeah. but so I I certainly appreciate that this is not on the scale of some of the other issues you've talked about, but it certainly was was uncomfortable and, and unfortunate. Yeah, I bet it would have been really more uncomfortable if for for, for um, instance, if you or your nephew needed to go to the bathroom or needed some help, and then you had to go into the bathroom with your nephew, then you would probably be worried about judgment of like, wondering if you're yeah. there doing something with the other kids or hit your, him, your, uh, your nephew himself or child, something like that. Children, right? Yeah, yeah. I had my children as well. When I, when my kids were younger, there was actually, it, Wesley, I had forgotten this, but you brought it, it you're, you triggered me, uh, reminded me and maybe triggered me. Um, I was, um, when my kids were younger, uh, one of my sons had to go to the bathroom and the other didn't. And the, the one who didn't certainly didn't want to have to go with me to take the other one to the bathroom. And they were young enough where I, it was appropriate for me to have them together. So I asked somebody, would you mind, you know, I'm going to take my kid to the bathroom. Um, and they were very uncomfortable with that. But also um, another mom seeing that I was heading into the bathroom, rushed to get her son out of the bathroom before uh, I was going into the bathroom. Yeah. And that really made me realize like, oh my goodness, this is a, this yeah. is a thing that, you know, even though, it, anyway. so that you just reminded me of that one instance. Yeah. You become hyper aware of what people could think and what they yeah. do think. Yeah. Uh, and it's so uncomfortable. And it's one of those things where it starts to become performative. Like yeah. your gestures become more yeah. like, I'm not making any quick movements or yeah. Yeah. you might need to say like, oh, do you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> I totally, I, I, I could totally relate to that experience. And it's extremely uncomfortable. Uh, I, um, we homeschool our kids. And so um, for our kids, often there'll be something will happen in the middle of the day. And generally the, you know, gender roles and dynamics that most of those middle of the day things happen with mostly moms or mothers or the, the, the caretaker who usually is a woman and um, mostly the men are not there. And so when I go there, I'm, out of place. And it almost feels like I have to say, these are my kids. Like this is a reason why I'm here or I work from home or I have a flexible schedule. Like I have to also like explain myself just being in a space. And so I totally can relate to that feeling. Yeah. You know, it's interesting at my, when my kids were in preschool, they, one of their teachers was a man and he wore a t-shirt that said, expect male involvement. And I remember thinking, you know, anytime, and, and I have worn many t-shirts about, you know, women belong in the House and the Senate or whatever. Yeah, but, right. And I remember thinking, like, anytime you need to put a t-shirt, put something on a t-shirt, like, there's there's a lot of social bias that needs fixing. Right. Some, something. I think angry. every American, when they go overseas, should say, have a shirt saying, I will not shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we laugh, but it's really not funny, is it? Uh, don't prevent us from crying. I, I have, I, I, I mean, this is, I guess this is embarrassing to, to say, but I have feigned being Canadian because I was afraid of the bias against America. And I, I, it's not like I was wearing a Canadian flag, but but I would. You're just chugging maple syrup or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to pretend to be Russian, but I don't do that anymore. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's interesting. You're right. Yeah, I think I think if, if it needs to be on a T-shirt, we should be talking about it, discussing it, yeah. and trying to make progress on it yeah. for sure. Yeah. Agreed. So I, I know we're we're just about at time, but I want to talk about sort of the difference between bias and racism or sexism, uh, if that's okay. And so I'm going to make an assertion that you all should feel free to disagree with. But I, I would argue that you two can experience gender bias in general, although I think when it comes to children, maybe it really is reverse sexism. I think what you experienced maybe was really reverse sexism. And you in the middle of the day, Wesley, what you're experiencing is reverse sexism because there's a, it's a, the, the, dom, the, the sort of power-dominant folks are, are women, not men, when it comes to caring for children. Uh, and then, so there's an exception to everything. Nothing I ever say except for this is absolutely true. Uh, and, uh, and, and I would argue that you and I can experience sort of racial bias, but not racism because we are living in, in, in this country, in the United States, because we're living in a society where, where, white people are systematically advantaged, not systematically disadvantaged. So discuss amongst yourselves. What do you think? I would say, Kim, you're in the middle of the Venn diagram. Yes, uh, as a white woman <laughs> in this situation, I would say I am. I would say that, yeah, this, that, that power dynamic and that difference um, is one of those things where if you don't experience it a lot, it can be easy to ignore. Yeah. And um, like, for instance, I'm in tech. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there, in, there are places where there aren't that many women. And so when I go into those places, it may take me a moment to realize that there aren't women there. And also, if there's a discussion, yeah. it might take me a bit to realize who is participating and who's not participating. Um, and it takes a type of an awareness that takes practice. Um, and uh, until... I've, I think you can latch on to that feeling and associate it that that same kind of uh, kind of like empathy. It, it's something that I can easily probably like be lulled into a sense of everything is okay. Yeah. 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 The, the sensitivity you're talking about, I think, is really important. And, and it's very easy to to just follow along or get in so con so engaged in what it is your task is that you don't see that going on around you. And I think part of the challenge is to to take that step back and see what's really going on here. That meta awareness, I think, is critical. We talked about having kids, and I, I, I'm guessing all of you have experienced this if you're a parent, that you see your kid tripping and then you see them falling. They haven't hit the ground yet, but you can feel yes. that yeah. feeling. It's like all over your body. Yes. You feel this. Yes. This, Yeah. And that's kind of the thing that you kind of have to develop with all these other groups that you may feel you, that you don't identify as, but you do have to have some sort of sensitivity to understand, like have that, that, that tingle to say that this isn't right. And being able to see someone else feel that harm is, is kind of the thing that we can experience as parents. And um, it's kind of really hard to explain if you're not a parent, um, but uh, maybe if you watch um, movies where people get injured, then you might have that same awesome. similar feeling. But that that attachment, that instead of that fleeting, like, oh, 
that was weird. Uh, okay. That sounded a little weird. And then letting it leave your brain, you it have to be able to sit with it and it needs to bother you enough to have to say something about it. I think is the, the other part of it. Yeah. I think you need to move through that pure empathy. Like if it's your child, mm-hmm. the empathy is so strong that it's like you're experiencing it yourself. And then it's very hard for me, that kind of empathy is paralyzing or, or causes me to respond in not the best way. Uh, so I, I, you, know, you got to move through empathy to compassion where you can take action uh, and, and not freak out if your kid falls down or not freak out if, if there's, a, if there's a, a woman in the room in, in a tech meeting who's getting ignored. But fig, figure out, oh, I felt that. Now I'm going to do something about it. In, in writing the book that I wrote, I, I interviewed a, a, a guy, his name's Colin Stobbs. He's a lecturer at, at the business school with me. And he has this model that he uses to help people have really crucial, challenging conversations. And I borrow it when I talk about listening, because I think listening is so important mm-hmm. in any communication, especially spontaneous communication. But it, this model, I think, applies to what you're talking about, Wesley, about how we can prepare ourselves to be aware of those circumstances. And and he calls it pace, space, and grace. You have to slow down. We are often moving Mm -hmm. so fast, we miss these things, especially when they're not directly impacting us. They're just happening around us. Maybe we're contributing to them. So we have to slow down enough. Then we have to give ourselves space, not just physical space, although that's important sometimes, but mental space to consider that this could be going on, right? If we don't look for it or accept that it could be happening, we're not going to see it. And then grace, and that grace is to respect the feeling that you have and the feelings that others might be having. And then as Kim just said, we have to speak up about it. So I think this notion of pace, space, grace is one of the ways we can build sensitivity to these circumstances and then actually encourage us to act on what we see or feel. And that's really important. That's that's a really great nugget. And you mentioned your book. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? Like, is it out yet? What's it called? So, so the book comes out end of September. It's called Think Faster, Talk Smarter. And it's really to help people speak better in the moment. Most work, if there's any work done on communication, is planned situations, a pitch, a presentation, a meeting. But most of our communication is like what we're doing right now. It's uh, What's going on right now is a combination of Q&A and small talk, right? And those are circumstances that are really hard for people. And most people get nervous about them and don't perform up to the level that they'd like. So the book is really designed to help people feel more comfortable and confident in those circumstances. And I just out of curiosity, have you done the the Toastmasters manual? Uh, I have. In fact, I okay. just last week was presenting at the Toastmasters International Convention. Um, I am a, I, I am a former Toastmasters, and I support that organization a lot. And they support this book. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the parts that we practice all the time in Toastmasters. So it's yeah. very, it's, it was, like you said, the hardest part. And so it does deserve a full book. So thank yeah. you for doing yeah, that. They work. call it table topics, right? Where you get a spontaneous topic and you have to, to respond right away. But that's what most of life is. Yeah. And, and so we, we need to be better at it. Well, awesome. thank you for taking the time and sharing your knowledge. And if you would like to be on the show, please send us an email at hello at justworktogether.com and write us a review, rate us on Apple Podcasts or their podcast player of choice. And thank you again for joining us for this episode. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Take care, everyone.